0: welcome to the determined truth podcast what the truth you can't handle the truth where we aim to explore questions of truth the scriptures and what it means for the church today here are your hosts rob dalrymple and Vinny angelo hey everyone welcome in we are continuing through the book of romans as we go through the new testament and uh man what a chapter we are in for today romans eight that's kind of a kind of a big deal right
1: yes this is this is the bible and like totality. I mean, other than the book of Revelation, this is just kind of <laughs> where you want to land, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah, as we go into Romans 8, let's keep in mind the themes of Exodus and and creation, especially, obviously, Exodus or the new Exodus and the new creation in mind. For Paul, Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises, as we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. And then for Paul, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is so often way too minimized in Christian theological conversations and dialogues and sermons for Paul the coming of the spirit and the presence of the spirit is the proof that the New Exodus has happened and that the new creation's begun and that he's right in this argument that you don't have to get circumcised because you guys got the spirit before mm. you were circumcised so trust me the spirit's coming is the fulfillment and okay I'll stop now because <laughs>
0: yeah well, and, and I would just say as we, like to encourage uh some of our listeners In my own tradition, uh, you know, in the Mm reformed tradition, we love Romans chapter eight, (laughs) but oftentimes we love Romans chapter eight for what happens more towards the back part. And I I know we'll talk about it a little bit, but you know, this, this foreknowledge and predestination and justification. And, and we really like, you know, clamp down there and and I'm good with that, but I know even in myself, as someone who has studied this book for years, it it hasn't been until the the recent years where I'm (laughs) actually reading the whole chapter and saying oh there's more going on than this other theological Mm -hmm. argument like paul is actually making this other thing and it's just the more i read and study the bible there's more and more of those passages where there's something true that is there but i'm oftentimes looking for the wrong thing and i'm missing the bigger point that is being made whether it's Colossians 1 15 through 20 and only wanting to focus on the, on the deity of Jesus and other things, Uh, you know, we we want to get hyped on these highly theological things, which I like, that's great. But man, is that the point that Paul is making or is he talking about something else? We just don't want to miss the argument that these guys are making uh, for the sake of only focusing on one theological point, which might be valid, but it's not just that. All right. So Romans eight, one begins with therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
1: Yeah, so here's this big, therefore, beginning Romans 8, uh, which is really concluding the argument of Romans 5, 6, and 7, Uh, and Romans 5, 6, and 7, and 8 are kind of repeating the argument of Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, depending on how you want to look at the book, and we'll get into that some more uh, as we go, but it begins by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation, and then look at the end of the chapter, so if you skip to Romans chapter 8, look at chapter 8, verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Ah, So it begins with, there is is no condemnation, Mm -hmm. and the chapter ends with, well, who's the one who condemns? Mm -hmm. And verses 38 and 39, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's Mm -hmm. the framing of this big chapter, and it is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Nothing can separate us from the love of God.
0: So what then becomes the point of, you know, Paul's point that he's trying to make in this chapter?
1: Well, I think this chapter is the culmination of his argument in the book of Romans. And I think his key point actually is uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church today as the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. So if I were to say it this way, maybe the emphasis on the present work of the Spirit in anticipation of the future work of the resurrection. Paul's going to argue, look, you already have the Spirit there's also this like, well, this is the not yet part too. Well, yeah, you, you're you still stuck in this mortal existence. So we continue in this mortal existence, the, the not yet part, but we already have the spirit. So Paul, the point that Paul's going to make is look, the spirit of God dwells in us and the spirit of God that dwells in us is the the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the temple. That, that presence of God uh, dwells in us. And so the spirit Uh, is the fulfillment of the cloud by day, and the fire by night, and the Exodus story. Michael Gorman says it this way. He says, a key claim of this theme in the entire chapter is the paradoxical death, whether Christ or ours, whether figurative or literal, and whether past or present or future, gives way to life. Hmm. Death gives way to life. And for Paul, the Spirit has already made you alive, and he will make you alive again in that eternal sense. So, I think that's kind of the key that Paul's getting at here in this chapter.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that this chapter highlights more than what we've seen in the book so far is that uh, there's this assurance that we have in Jesus.
1: Yes. It kind of goes a little bit to what you're saying, that we kind of want to skip to Romans 8, 28 and 29 Mm and 30 in this. Uh, You've been uh, foreknown and predestined and all that good stuff there. I think that we need to understand the assurance in Christ in light of the context of the chapter. Paul has been arguing in detail that God was faithful to his covenant in Christ. So let's begin maybe kind of going a step backwards. Let's look at Romans 8, 1 through 4. Uh, I don't know if you want to read that or not. Sure. If your translation is good enough.
0: No, let's see. Let's, Let's see what the fine people did. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit.
1: There you go. So, for the Jewish persons as we've discussed before now in, the, in this, the time of Paul, their basis of assurance was that they were members of God's covenant family, and the evidence that they were members of God's covenant family was, well, they did circumcision, Torah, and the Sabbath keeping. You now, these works of the law, as they've, as they've been described. And these are outward signs of the covenant. And again, bear in mind, right? It's not to say they were members of the covenant because they were Jewish. It's to say they were members of the covenant because they kept the works of the law. And the idea of, well, the law says that if you sin, well, yeah, if, they, if you sin, you go do this sacrifice. And mm-hmm. that's what makes you. You maintain membership in the in the covenant family by doing the works of the law. Well, Paul then says, yeah, but assurance is in is a result of the spirit. Uh, there's no there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in verse one, but then look what he says in verse four. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Ah, the assurance that we have is an assurance that we live in and through and by the spirit.
0: So then um, you think that the doctrine of assurance, it's kind of nuanced then.
1: Yes, I think I think we have too simplistic of, a, of an idea. Because again, going back to our, our Reformation heritage, right? Reformation heritage says that you were justified at this one moment in time. And if you're new to that theology, that, the idea of that is that's the, mo- the moment you became saved. The mm-hmm. moment that you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, repented of your sins, whatever it might be, there's a point in time where you became justified. Now, some people go on and realizing, well, yeah, but not everybody actually knows what that point in time was. They Mm kind of, they got justified over a period of time. Yeah, but there's still this moment in time where actually it was true, they were justified. And then for that theology, then it says, okay, and then sanctification is this process that then begins. The moment you're justified, you're now saved. And therefore there's an assurance of salvation because you have been justified. And then this idea well, the sanctification is this process of growing more and more Christ-like. Now, I think we've already hinted at this, but one of the problems that we have with this theological concept is that too many people think, well, I am justified, so I don't need to be sanctified, because someday Christ is going to come back, or I'm going to die, whatever happens first, and I'm going to be glorified then. So, sanctification is this process that begins, the idea being, at conversion, or the moment of justification, and then at you continue on this process until you become Christ like, which you never actually ultimately attain until death or resurrection. Or maybe if you're Wesleyan, maybe you can attain it in the, in the here and now.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: too often that's kind of left out. I think when you start looking at the biblical story, however, you start realizing it's more complex than this that sanctification and justification kind of work together at the same time. And justification is also itself a process. That doesn't mean that the the outcome of the guarantee, the process isn't still guaranteed. I just think it's more nuanced.
0: And let me actually jump in with that as well, because I, I'm someone who would affirm in my tradition, I would hold to, I could see something like a, a Romans 5, other other places as well, if we were to jump right. out of there, you where it, seemed, yeah, and it seems like, okay, there there is this past tense thing that has happened. Uh, and, and I would be okay, because I know there's a lot of different ways to understand yeah. sanctification. But I would be okay of okay using that language of, yeah, this is something where you are being made more holy. However, we also need to recognize there are times where while you have been described as have being saved in mm-hmm. terms of a past tense, there's also times Paul even is it first Corinthians fifteen, he talks about like you are being saved, depending well, on Philippians how the translation
1: three or Philippians two, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling,
0: which seems yeah. to be this like present thing that's happening. But then there's right. also times where it talks about well, you will be saved in the yeah. future. And, exactly. and so exactly and so I think that's where uh, like in my own perspective, I would like I would be comfortable teaching saying, there's a moment where you have been declared righteous by God. However, what that does not mean is that now you're just good and you could do whatever you want. And, you know, I would, I would also put nuance and caveats there saying it depends on, you know, how you live your life is then going to determine. Mm-hmm. Was it actually something that was actually true? Um, and it, yeah. meaning by the fruit you're living, how you're right. persevering through uh life that that's going to validate if this is actually a true faith or not.
1: Wow, boy, we could go off here for like three <laughs> hours too, couldn't we? And I don't mm-hmm. think we need to, we're going to now. Yeah. But I think as we continue to go through the New Testament, this question that we're, this, this can of worms that we're opening up, and that, the, the listeners might not understand exactly what can of worms that we're looking at right now. I think we're going to expose this more and more and more as we go through. Mm-hmm. Because what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it, What does a Christian look like? Mm-hmm. And I think the simplistic definition of a Christian is someone who confessed Jesus Christ as Lord
0: mm-hmm.
1: and meant it in their heart, let's, let's just add that in there, okay? and they really meant it in their heart at camp when they were 12 or what, when they were 35, what in prison, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I don't mean to deny that, that those aren't legitimate experiences that people actually have. No, yeah. de- I'm not denying that. I'm just simply saying, I think that that simplistic understanding of a Christian as someone who confessed Jesus as Lord is way too simplistic. And the New Testament's not going to allow it. It just simply isn't. And as we keep going further and further into it, I, I can't wait to get to 1 Corinthians, you know, because I'm writing the devotional guide for those who are doing the devotional guide. The idea was that, that these podcasts kind of go alongside with the devotional guide, but the devotional guide's gotten ahead of us, right? So we, <laughs> we stayed back in Romans. We stayed in John too long, but we stayed in Romans too long. And so they're in First Corinthians, I'm like almost finishing First Corinthians right now. And I'm like, I can't wait till we get to First Corinthians for mm-hmm. our podcast, because there's like some great stuff there. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think we have it too simplistic. So N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, when Paul says there is now no condemnation, uh, N.T. Wright says that Paul is speaking eschatologically. And what, mm-hmm. we, what he means by that is, he says, the verdict of the last day has been brought forward into the present. And so we look at that, and let's see if I can make this clear now. We look at that and go, okay, it's a verdict that's being that's now, it's a, it's a now verdict. I there is now no condemnation. I have cannot be condemned. Who is the one who condemns us? Can't be done. I am saved. It's done. And it, Paul is looking at that, as saying, well, that's going to be the outcome. Yes, true. But at the same time, that's not necessarily fully true in the present as it it's it's true and it's not true, if I were to say it that way. And I, and I know Westerners don't like that because like, well, you, you got to have one or the other, Rob. I'm like, well, I don't think so. I think uh, it, it's a both and. So kind of, let, let me walk through a, a couple of verses here for, for us. And I, Paul then goes on to say in verse two, he says four, let me see Romans chapter eight, verse two. So verse one, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Four, and this is where the word four is very important. When the word four begins a, a verse or a clause like this, it's often the word gar in Greek, and it usually indicates the reason why. It can have a couple of different meanings, but ultimately it, it means the reason why. So the reason why there is no, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because, well, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. We've been set free. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do. W- what, what couldn't it do? Well, the law was weak because of the flesh. So what it couldn't do because of the flesh, namely our sinful flesh that that goes on. And again, don't think of flesh as opposite of spirit. Mm -hmm. Just think of flesh as the physical body that we are in that is corrupted by sin and uh, is a life that lives the life of of sin. What the law could not do, God did. God sent by sending us his own son. And he, he set you free. And there's that Exodus language. He set you free from the law of sin and death. So when Paul says that he condemns sin in the flesh, he, in verse 3, he means in the flesh of Jesus. Ah. Oh, hmm. He did by sending his own son. And notice what he says, by the way. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which is interesting because he's not admitting that Jesus was actually in sinful flesh. He was in the flesh that we're in, but his flesh wasn't sinful. But God condemned sin in that flesh, Jesus' flesh, the one that's actually not sinful, it just looks like it is because it looks like ours. Mm -hmm. So the point of that is Jesus is truly human, but he avoids of saying that he was actually in the sinful flesh. And then he says, and they offered him as an offering for sin. In order that, and here you go verse four now. And my translation, the New American Center says, so that. And it needs to say something like that. So Mm -hmm. Vinny, you are one of my students in Greek. When you have a a word like hina, Mm -hmm. I just always demand of my Greek students that you just translate it as in order that, because Mm -hmm. then you see what's going on. In order that is a purpose statement. It can be a result or a purpose statement. This happened in order that that might happen, or this happened and the result was that that happened. But I often mean it's just a purpose. So he condemned sin in the, in the flesh of Jesus, who became an offering for sin, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Ah, what do you mean the requirement of the law? And notice we've talked about this a few times already, and we'll get into it in our next episode, in Romans 9 to 11. This is not replacing the Old Testament law. With something else oh mm-hmm. guess what that was for that that day which is too often in christendom right oh the old testament was for the jewish people and the new testament is jesus and the old testament was about the law i'm sorry if you're lutheran here but the old testament was about the law and the new Testament is about the spirit and they mm-hmm. don't have anything to do with each other it's like no that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us and a great verse to really understand what's happening in the new testament not just romans but often many places in the, in the new Testament. Is from Ezekiel chapter 36. So mm. if you're listening here, look at Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. And you could really go uh, even earlier in Ezekiel 36, but this is the 26 and 27 is kind of the, the key parts of it. If you start in verse 22, that even better off. And notice if you're looking at Ezekiel twenty-six and um, uh, 36 in your Bibles, notice at the end of the passage, it has Eden language. All right? So there's, there's this fulfillment of the coming of the Spirit, In the language of Eden. So verse 35 says, And the desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. Hmm. So, ah, this new creation language. So Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ah, oh. So Ezekiel 36 and 26 and 27, it's about the coming of the Holy Spirit. There's no question it's about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the, the issue of land actually comes up in the next verse in verse 28. But we won't get into that tonight. That's for next week. <laughs> uh, but notice, the coming of the Spirit is to do what? That we might be a new creation, hence this Eden language at the end of Ezekiel 36. And so that we can then do what? That we can actually fulfill the law, that we can Mm -hmm. live it out. And what's the law? Well, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, which gets way too simplified in our churches too often. And I'm not going to do another sermon here now, but we really have to flush out what that means. Because I think if we do, when we do, as we go through the New Testament, we're going to see. Hey, this this is a lot more than what we commonly teach in our churches these days. So, well,
0: and even to uh, go back to what we were talking about earlier, where there's an oversimplification of uh, the moment I got saved and then I'm good, and it you know you know because I said the prayer at camp or something like that, yeah. and it's like man, if we're gonna take Jesus seriously, he defined. What, uh, that it's not just yeah. re- confessing that Jesus is Lord, which is the the point that you made, but it's also saying like, okay, well then it's evident that you're one of my followers because you have love for one another. right? And that's how people know that you're my disciple. So do these other types of things exist? And, and we, we'll even get to that when we get to Romans 12, because Romans 12 is all about fleshing that out in a sense where it's saying, this is what it means to love one another and yeah. even how to love your enemy.
1: Yeah, well, you're going to get that in 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John. Exactly. You're going to yeah, get it in book of James. <laughs> you're going to get that in the book of Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Let, let me, I don't mean to correct you or anything like that, but let me see if I can, I would say it a different way. Okay. And what I would say in a different way is, it actually is all about saying Jesus is Lord.
0: It, but, of course. Yeah. But, yeah, it, yeah.
1: Right. But yeah. when we say Jesus is Lord, it means this. So yes. what you kind of said, it's also this. I'd say, well, that's actually what Jesus is Lord means. And yes, I know you agree. Yeah. I just, I like saying it that way, because what we do is we say, We're not adding things on to the gospel. We're saying the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. And if you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you will love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you do that, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. This is what the law is about. And this is what it means to say, I'm denying myself, taking up my cross and following him because you're Lord. So I think that's kind of all one package. And I think when we explain it that way, it helps people kind of keep it and focus a little bit better. So. Yeah, and and
0: and even to encourage my friends in the reform tradition, where if when we go to that latter part of Romans chapter eight, where it talks about, uh, you know, for and, and we'll, I know we'll get there in the mm-hmm. text, but just to connect to this, that uh, you know, God works together all things for good for those who are called according to His purpose for those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to His image, uh, and then you know, for those He predestined, He called, and we, we get all this stuff. And we like to figure out what that means from a theological standpoint in terms of foreknowledge of God conversations and sovereignty right. of God and, and, and election and predestination questions. But in the same way, what this means is if you are one of these people, you look like a Romans 12 church. Right. And, and you look like not just a Romans 12 church, you look like a Romans 13 and 14 to 15 church as well, because it just doesn't stop there. And, and so that's the thing, it's if you believe this doctrinal thing to be true, your culture should rep, uh, reflect that as well. And if your culture doesn't reflect it, it's probably not actually believed in the correct way.
1: Yeah, and I think um, maybe another way of saying it would be, you would be you would look like Romans 12, which looks like the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah. Right? Yep. I mean, yep. we're, mm-hmm. we're actually living out the law. Yep. And when you go to Acts 2, Acts 3, and Acts 4, what you see is that the church was actually doing what the law said. There should not be a needy person among you, Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. And, and, and Acts chapter 4 says, there was, not, uh, there was not a needy person among them. Mm-hmm. Ah, he's quoting literally the Greek from version of, of the book of Deuteronomy there, in Acts chapter 4. And I think yeah. that's actually what we're, what we're missing out on so much. Let's go back for just a second now to, uh, to Romans chapter 7. Look at Romans 7, verse 10. He says, in this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. The commandment's the law, right? So he goes you know, verse 7, is the law sin? No, on the contrary. Look at verse 12 now, Romans 7, verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy Mm -hmm. and righteous and good. So the point of this is not that the law is bad. We couldn't do the law. The law just proves us how much we're sinners and how much we need a Savior. Good thing Jesus died for our sins so we can be saved. Oh, thank God I'm saved now. I get to go to heaven when I die. No, the law was good Mm -hmm. and was holy. And it actually was meant to give life. And it was meant to give life for those who do it. Mm -hmm. But because the flesh, meaning the sinful human flesh that we have, we couldn't do it. And so Jesus comes in the likeness of that flesh as human and does what we couldn't do. What what did he do? Oh, he died for my sins. Well, true. But he also fulfilled the law. Mm -hmm. He did what the law says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. And he did all that, and then he died as an atoning sacrifice and as the fulfillment of that. And, and therefore, he was, as Colossians is going to say, well, Colossians actually does say this, but we're going to get there later on. So for us, it's what Colossians is going to say, uh, <laughs> that he is the image of the invisible mm-hmm. God. Ah, oh, there you go. He's the true Adam. Yeah. Right? And, and, and that, I'm image bearer.
0: I'm curious, too, you, you had appealed back to Ezekiel 36. I mean, in a sense, for what we're talking about right now, this is going back to Jeremiah 31, 31. if we want to yeah, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we could do the yeah. law because it's been written on our hearts. Yeah. We've been empowered by the Spirit, and so we could actually do this thing now in the way it was supposed to be done.
1: That's right. So while you brought it up, let's go ahead and read it. Jeremiah 31, uh, and it's verses 31 through 33. Um, I don't know if you want to read it or not. So this will be really important for the book of Hebrews because this passage is quoted, mm-hmm. quoted twice in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. Uh, it's also very important for uh, the book of Revelation and and, and second, first, second Corinthians, I'll be their God and they'll be my people in mm-hmm. verse 33. But verse 33, the middle of it is the key that you were pointing out earlier, and that is, I'll put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. And I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Now, if you combine that with Ezekiel 36, the way, and with Paul's argument here in Romans 8, the way in which God's written the law on, his, on our heart is he gave us the spirit. Mm-hmm. It's the spirit that's within our hearts that enables us to be transformed, to no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, that's one quick um, clarification before we move any further. When Paul says that we do not walk any longer according to the flesh, he's referring to the rebellious human nature, not just our physical bodies. Mm-hmm. It's the rebellious human nature. And, and instead we walk according to the spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So too much of Christendom, as we've discussed before, and I'm sure we'll discuss many times as we move forward, we've made this dichotomy between physical, spiritual, which is just Epicureanism, right? Mm-hmm. A Neoplatonism that says, oh, there's the physical world, there's a spiritual world. Um, the physical world becomes evil and corrupt and it's bad and we, we die in that world, that's our sinful flesh. But we live in the spirit and our goal is to go to heaven someday as spirit beings which radically undermines the whole notion of a resurrection because it's mm-hmm. a resurrection of a physical body. Well, that's actually Gnosticism. Yep. For some of you that know what that means, which is an early Christian her- an early heresy that encroached in the Christian church. It's Epicureanism and Neoplatonism. So all, kind of all those things are working together. And it's also Enlightenment thinking. Mm-hmm. And so that Enlightenment thinking, and the key of that is the Enlightenment and the Reformation basically begin together at the same time. They're overlapping. And so you see the Enlightenment thinking encroaching on Reformation thinking. And so we have this upstairs, downstairs, God's upstairs, we're downstairs. Upstairs is the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm. That's the good things. Someday, maybe I'll even get raptured up there because my physical body's bad. I need to get raptured out of it um, and escape this world. This world's going to pot, so we don't have to worry about creation. We don't have to care for the creational world. We don't have to worry about global warming. And none of that stuff matters because it's all physical, and that's not what Paul's getting at at all. In fact, we're going to kind of get there. I was Romans actually going to say Romans 8 actually. Could yeah, yeah, we're going to get there in just yeah. a little bit anyway. Yeah. But when he says then one more time, then when we do not walk according to the flesh, he's referring to the rebellious human nature, but we instead walk according to the spirit. He means we walk according to the Holy Spirit. So that's an mm-hmm. important, important caveat. So let's continue on now.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. and Hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know five stars. If you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. So you noted that this is one of the great expositions of the Spirit. Is that because of where Paul lands in uh, verse 9 of chapter 8?
1: Yeah. Yes. And uh, l- l- let me read that. It's, sure. It says, uh,
0: You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him.
1: Right. And th- this is where our English Bible is going to do us a little bit of injustice. They're translating it correctly, but... Uh, and you may recall from your Greek uh, course uh, the phrase "if." So here, let me kind of go step back for a second. When Paul. First off, Paul says the Spirit of God indwells in you. That's the Sakina glory of God that indwelt in the temple. So it's the Spirit of God that dwells in us. This is why we have an extremely high theology of the Spirit in the New Testament. Right? So we we can't under um, under um, emphasize or understate. No, say it again. We can't overstate. The significance of christ there's no doubt about that but we also need to elevate the spirit to a state alongside of christ Mm -hmm. because now the coming of the holy spirit is as roman dates kind of getting us into oh the new exodus has come the new creation has come as ezekiel says as jeremiah says and so paul says then in verse 9 he says you are not in the flesh but in the spirit in other words you're not living according to that the carnal human sinfulness but living in accordance with the holy spirit if indeed the spirit of god dwells in you now, that phrase, if indeed, well, in English, if is, well, if it's true, mm-hmm. then this is the result. But in Greek, there's a different couple of different ways you can phrase a statement like this. And in Greek, this is a, called a first-class conditional. And the first-class conditional means, if indeed this is true, and it is true. In English, you go, well, if it's true, and Paul's like, no, it is true. That's what he means mm-hmm. by it. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you're in the Spirit. And of course, he does. So look at verse 10 and 11 now. If Christ is in you, now he just went from the spirit of God is in you to if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Hmm. So yeah, there you go. It's about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Mm -hmm. And I think this ultimately now gets to the point of The guarantee of a resurrection, which is going to answer the question back in chapter seven, by the way, in chapter seven, Paul says, you know, wretched man that I am. And I I do think that when Paul describes, you know, it's a famous passage in Romans seven, where Paul says, you know, what I want to do, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't do, I I do the very thing I don't want to do. There are so
0: many different positions on who is this person. Yeah, Yeah. It can't be
1: Paul. Okay. Mm -hmm. It can't be Paul speaking about himself Mm -hmm. because it's not true. Paul by Paul himself now is indwelt by the Spirit. And what he says in Romans 8 clearly tells you that Romans 7 can't be about himself. He's speaking about himself in light of as a representative of the nation of Israel. He is, and you'll see this in Romans 10 also, that where he takes a phrase referring to the nation of referring to himself, and he's actually talking about the people of Israel. So he says, Wretched man that I am, a wretched man that Israel is. <laughs> So Israel had the law, but we couldn't do it. The law was good, and it was holy, and but it brought death because of, of our sin. So verse 24 of Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Ah, there you go. There's your answer. Verse ten, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So I think this is kind of the, the first big key here uh, of what Paul's getting at
0: okay so we get more flesh versus spirit language in verse 12 so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh uh and then he he talks about living according to the flesh but if the spirit you know and he's contrasting there
1: yeah yeah and this again is one of those things that you know i know in so many churches that i kind of grew up in Mm -hmm. Uh, we're afraid of the Holy Spirit, right? We don't want to give them too much of a stage because if we do, the charismatics might jump on the stage next to them <laughs> and start doing stuff that we don't approve of being done in church. And it's like, you know what, guys? Maybe they have some things right that we need to learn from too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that I agree with the theology, theology, theology of, of uh, the, the charismatic movement per se, but I do think that the stress on the Holy Spirit actually is quite warranted. So verse 12 begins, So then, brothers... Uh, And again, here's another one of those ways where our English translations kind of don't bring out enough of the emphasis. Mm -hmm. Um, The Greek is like, therefore, now, then, brothers and sisters, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's very emphatic, Uh, what we call the vocative case. It's it's, it's an emphatic statement, brothers and sisters, therefore, Paul's answer is then we have an obligation not to the flesh, and again, the flesh is not our physical body, but the, the sinfulness of that physical body. Uh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live that way, he's going to say in verse 13, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will live. And then look what he says in verse 14 now. For, ah, the word for means the reason why. For, the reason why if you live according to the Spirit, then you will live, is because all who are being led by the Spirit of God, well, these are sons of God. Now, remember, look at the phrase, being led by the Spirit of God. This is Exodus language, again, where the Spirit of God's leading us out. Those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons and maybe uh, sons and daughters of God. This idea of Exodus imagery. So the being led by the Spirit is, exe- is explicitly taken from the language of Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, where God went before them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the result is that those who are being led by the Spirit, obviously, they're also being indwelt by the Spirit, which makes them priests, which makes them temples uh they are the sons and daughters of god and then paul says in verse 15 you have not received a spirit of slavery there's this exodus language because you were slaves in egypt leading to fear again I was, the, the spirit you got is not leading you back to egypt it's leading you out of egypt you instead received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out abba father hmm. now again remember and we'll discuss this a little bit more when we, when we get to um uh, scott mcknight because i'm going to let we're going to let scott mcknight say hey hey okay, hey this is my thesis uh, in terms of who Paul is speaking to here, but we have at least the Jews and Gentile converts, and so they've all been adopted as sons and daughters of God because uh, of the Spirit, and they cry out, "Abba, Father."
0: I, I'm curious on this. Just yesterday, I was flipping through the radio, and there's a very popular uh, pastor whose you know his sermons on the radio, and he's he's dropping, and I I don't know what passage he was talking about, but he he talks about Abba, Father, and he was, he was just spending a lot of time uh, talking about how Abba is like daddy. It's like the, the first words you would say to your father, you know, it's, it's this intimate thing. And he was making a point how if, if when my kids, they come and they need to borrow something, or if they need something, they're not, they're not saying, Oh, thou was grandest father. They're saying, Hey dad. And, and this is the point that we're supposed to see when we, when we see a new Testament language use Abba, it's that kind of you know, daddy like little kid language. Is that's what is that what's happening here?
1: I wouldn't express it that way, no. Um, it's the key thing I just to stay in the context here, if I can kind of avoid the question a little bit, because mm. let's just let me kind of take the question to Romans chapter eight. In Romans chapter eight, the crying out Abba is a cry of distress mm. from a person who's undergoing suffering. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Abba right? What's happening? Jesus is in distress, and he's, and he's suffering. And so again, the point of, of Abba Father here is this context of Exodus. You were slaves. you being led out of slavery. You've been led, being led out of suffering, and by the Spirit of God, and, the, and he goes on to say in verse 16, the Spirit is, in fact, the one who bears witness that we are children of God, so it's not about whether or not this is this is Abba language of, oh, this is daddy language. It's mm-hmm. it's like, dad, help me. It, mm-hmm, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a cry of distress from someone who's undergoing suffering then. So I think that's far more important. So mm-hmm. Paul goes on to say, then if if we are children of God, then we are heirs also. And this is going to lead a little bit into next week uh, in our discussion. But if we're heirs, we're heirs of God, he says in verse 17, and fellow heirs with Christ whoa well what do you mean mm-hmm. well again first thing to note is as we discussed in our last episode the only thing that you would inherit would be the firstborn son would mm-hmm. inherit the land i mean that's what that's what you inherit uh inherit inheriting the land so this is this i think this is wrapped up in land promises and land covenant the whole language of this is that you are the children of israel you are the the, the people of god coming out of egypt and the sons of abraham and all that good stuff there also And so now we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, which is very interesting there. Now, look what he adds at the end of this. He says, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Ah, we're fellow heirs with Jesus. But the goal is to be conformed to the image of his son. So that takes us just to kind of jump there for a second. This passes it, Reformed theologians love to go to, verses 28 and 29, and, or 29 and 30 most particularly. Mm-hmm. But look what he says in verse 29, those mm-hmm. whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Ah, that's the whole and, point.
0: And at the end of that phrase, it's those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Yeah. So he's, he's continuing that theme there. But even reading verse 17, I mean it's a bit of a different context but i'm thinking a lot of even just from a biblical theology standpoint this is revelation 321 it's those who overcome sit on his father's throne just as he uh overcame it sits on his father's throne yes and uh, so there's just those connections of this is what the people of god do they do what jesus did
1: well they do mark eight thirty four through 38 if you want mm-hmm. to be a my disciple take up my take up your yep. cross and follow me right? yep. yeah it's exactly it's all these passages and and you can go through almost the entirety of the new testament and find uh, the same thing, and that is, what does it mean to be uh, someone who confesses that Jesus is Lord? And that answer is that someone that the nations who have their own lords and their own gods and mm-hmm. their own kings, mm-hmm. they're not going to like, um, but they're going to respect you maybe, yeah, because of who you are and the fact that you're loving people and that you're taking care of widows and orphans and <laughs> their distress. And they're like, they don't have to do with you, yeah. And they may kill you, but they may also go, yeah, but we kind of really do li- like you. And you know, the Book of Acts says that great fear fell upon those who are beholding them they're like we don't know who those people are they're weird mm-hmm. they're different they're like we don't believe in this Jesus thing but you know what we respect them and their God and what they're doing
0: so yeah yeah and very much so like other than making fun of the Amish have you ever met anyone who hates the Amish like <laughs> other than being like why don't they want electricity want they? like you what are you going to bag on? It's like, man, these are people who live consistently with their ethic. Okay. Uh, it, and it's just, it's like, well, that's one of those groups who gets it in a minute. And I don't know yeah. the whole history of, of the Amish people. And I'm sure that everyone has got something in their background, but it's like, you just don't uh-huh. hear that with, you know. Yeah, you
1: think of the shooting that happened in an Amish community oh, a number of in years like ago, like 2006, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, and then yeah. their
0: response. How they embraced, all those moms embraced them. Oh, oh my gosh, And they, were, yeah. they embraced the shooter. Yes, yeah. And, and his parents, right? The shooter's parents, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, how do you do... You, you you grieve your own child right now, right? And they yeah. they were so able to live outside themselves yes. and to see others as Christ would see them that they were, yeah, it's like, this is incredible. This is yeah. incredible. So All
0: right, so we get to the next section, starting at verse 18, and that goes 18 to 30. And now we get a lot of creation language, specifically new creation.
1: Yes, and creational language. Mm-hmm. So if we think of the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, And I know I've summarized this a number of times before. Humanity was made to rule and to care for God's creation. They were supposed to be kings and queens, that's Genesis chapter 1, and they were supposed to be priests, that's Genesis chapter 2. Adam is described as a priest who's taking care of the garden is the same language used as the priest taking care of the temple. So what we don't consider enough, however, is the fact of humanity's sin, how it's affected the creation also. So Paul begins this section by saying, by talking about the renewal of all things. And look what he says. So in verse 17, he said, if indeed we suffer with him, then we're followers with Christ. Then verse 18, for I consider that our sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So here we go. It's this glorious um, end result. The present sufferings don't compare with the eternal glory that's awaiting us. And now Paul is going to explain well, what this eternal glory is going that's awaiting us is going to be. And he's going to list like four features of our present suffering. And I guess we say, you know, why it's char- characteristic of this age? And his first point is, well, it's characteristic of this age because the creation's going through it. So verses 19 to 21, he says this. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now remember, he's just decri- described us as sons of God, right? You, these are the sons of God, verse 14. Those who are being led by the Spirit, we are the sons and daughters of God. So the crea- so the creation's waiting eagerly for our revealing, verse twenty. For the creation, and again, for is the reason why the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The whole creation, in other words, is longing for its resurre- for our resurrection because it was subjected to frustration in the present and it does this because it also is going to have a glorious resurrection and a glorious rest- restoration, which again speaks loudly to the issue of creation care mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, I thought God was going to burn it all up. The word for burning, of uh, the description of burning in Second Peter chapter 3, it's is describing a, a judgment, a purifying, not a destroying of it, but a purifying of it. And the new creation is the is the old one perfected, the old one glorified? That's what I think anyway. Right, now, if now Paul's going to ask the question like, well, well, why should the creation wait for this? And the answer is because it was subjected to frustration, as we just said. So what does creation have to do with this? The answer is, well, because our rule and our subduing of it and our inability to exercise our rightful rule and dominion cause the creation to begin to suffer. And a really good passage for this is Hosea chapter 4. I'll say it again in case you're listening. In case you're not listening. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Hosea 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I don't know if you have a video. I have it here, so.
0: Here you can go.
1: Okay. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord is a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence that sh- that, so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Well, that's Genesis 1 language, right? Mm. The birds of the air and the, beast, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. That's what we were supposed to rule over and subdue the whole creation, and it mourns. So I think, as a side note, as we're recording this here in, in late August or the last day of August here, and it won't air for a few weeks now. I have trouble watching the news sometimes, and especially this last week, because um, over one-third of the country of Pakistan is underwater. Hmm. And I think it's 9 million inhabitants, 9 out of 30 million people are lost their land, they've lost everything. They've, it's, just, it's devastation. And people look at that and they go, well, how could God allow this? I mean, it's monsoons that they've never had on record. And so it's God's fault because he brought all the rain. Well... And we're going to get to this in the book of Revelation ultimately. And I'm going to get to this in my blogs over the course of the next several months. What's happening in Pakistan could be avoided. If the leaders of Pakistan did what they needed to do, and that was build the infrastructure to handle Mm -hmm. the water, they didn't put the things in place so that they could protect the people, their own people, if -hmm. this were to happen. And now their own people are suffering. Now, that doesn't say that, okay, because of that, you know what, it's their fault. No, we need to stop and have, okay, we need to raise money for Pakistan. These people are dying. They, they have no food. They have no land. They have nothing to go back to. they are very few people that were able to get their animals out, have no place for their animals to graze. And so if their animals die, then their source of sustenance, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how horrible this is, one-third of the country of Pakistan. And by mm-hmm. the way, there's a good number of Christians in Pakistan also, which mm-hmm. shouldn't matter. But it, it, it's still important to point that out. So we need to stop and say, okay, what can we do? How can we help? But the point of that actually is, is this isn't God's fault. This is the fact of bad leadership. To subdue the earth and to rule over it is to put things in place to protect people and to protect animals and protect the creation. So when, when floods happen, there are floodwaters and there are there are dams and there are levees and there are things that are in place there. So it, I think Hosea 4, 1 through 3 is, is speaking out to this. So Paul's point then, let's kind of finish up Romans 8 here a little bit. And that is, Paul's first point then is that creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption in other words, creation is also in need of a new exodus. Mm. And this happens when the glory of the children of God occurs. When we're resurrected, Paul Paul goes on to say, "Well, look what he says in verse 22, for the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now the word groaning is going to be really important as we go through this passage. So the first time we see groaning is the whole creation groans in verse 22 and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So this explains why things remain so difficult. You know, here it is that we live in the spirit, but yet we also have this mortal flesh and uh, the, the corruption of creation around us, but we can also be confident of God's final victory and of our our redemption because the whole creation is groaning and suffering waiting for this time of transformation of the old world into the new.
0: Okay. So the first of your four features of the present suffering is that uh, mankind is not being good stewards of creation as God decreed. Is that the uh, way you'd yeah, say
1: it? I would say that the creation because suffering. Because of fault. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But okay, And the okay. creation is suffering is a result of of our failure to do what we're supposed to be doing. And okay. you see that even today uh, in Pakistan and the floods that are happening. Okay. Okay. Uh, live at the end of twenty uh, I mean, 11. you could say the
0: same thing even like it, we're coming on the what 17th anniversary of um, uh, Hurricane Katrina. And much of the devastation didn't happen with the hurricanes, it happened when the levees broke. And once again, was which re- was a result of bad stewardship of uh, just the engineering and what was happening there.
1: Yeah, and you know, you hate, I don't hate to bring this up, but people hate probably when I bring this up. But what you're talking about there in both cases, Pakistan and Katrina, and I'm mm-hmm. not fully aware of Katrina very okay. much as all, and I'm not an expert on Pakistan. But it's the, it's those in power that have money and mm-hmm. power, and then they aren't using it to care for the poor. Correct. Yeah. Right. And that's what happens because the people who lived in those lowlands were the poor. Mm-hmm. The rich lived up in the hills and they have yep. their houses are fine. Yep. Um, unless, of course, mudslides bring it down. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic. All right. So the yeah. second point yeah, then. Yeah.
0: What's number two? Yeah.
1: All right, so the second point then is Paul says in verse 23 and we ourselves grown. Ah. So verse 22, I think it was the whole creation groans. And now in verse 23, not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So Paul's second point then is is like well just like the creation's groaning, we're too groaning because we've got our sinful flesh, we still live in a fallen world, we still see catastrophes like what we see with Pakistan or Hurricane Katrina a number of years ago. So even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, right and again notice this is a, this is so significant for the New Testament, meaning we already have the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory of God already dwells in us. And we should live according to it. And what it is doing is writing the law of God on our hearts that we will follow that law, which is love your neighbor and love the Lord your God. And no longer according to the flesh, which is seek yourself and seek self-interest and don't deny yourself, but, you know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and make yourself something in the world and be successful. We don't live that way. And so we we have this, this uh, what we call the already not yet, that we live in this tension now. So God's future redemption has already come in the present because we have the Spirit, but... Yet we are awaiting the adoption as sons, which is interesting, right? He said in verse 15 that we've already been adopted and that we are children of God. And now he says that we're awaiting our adoption. And that, I think this goes back to what we said about justification, for example. Yeah, it's this true and not yet thing uh, also. Mm-hmm. So the glory, of course, includes the redemption of our bodies. And we're going to get into this a lot more in the book of First Corinthians, uh, the resurrection chapter. But again, redemption is this exodus language, being being brought out of slavery and being redeemed. Verse 24, really quickly, he says, we were saved in hope. Uh, and we were saved. So salvation is like already something present. We well, are saved in hope because our future salvation is not present. And therefore we must hope uh, and strain with perseverance. He's in verse 25, he says, if what we hope for we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Um, and I think I might even clarify saying, that we're already doing the work of trying to bring it about. Uh, I think too often we hear this already not yet thing and go, okay, well, it's already true, but it's also not yet true. I guess I just sit back and wait till it becomes, you know, um, the not yet happens. Mm -hmm. And the not yet's the resurrection and the new creation comes. But I think we are to begin already now implementing the new creation now. And again, can't wait to get get to 1 Corinthians, but in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul uses Garden of Eden language Mm -hmm. to say, like apollos planted the church and i watered it or i planted it and apollos watered it it's eden language it's it's i planted this garden and we're this garden's growing and this garden is the church hmm. so i think this is really significant
0: okay so creation is uh crying out and groaning uh, we ourselves are crying out and groaning uh you know in the in terms of the first two so where's three number three at
1: All right. now, number three then paul says oh and guess what and the spirit groans hmm. so verse 26 he says in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we don't know how to pray as we should. We'll get to that in a second. But, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There you go. This creation groans, we groan, and the Spirit groans for us. Now, when Paul says that we don't know how to pray as we should, I think he's talking about this um, creational language, this Genesis language of ruling. So Adam and Eve were given this... Hey, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We said this last week. Uh, Eat from the tree of life instead. The serpent comes along and says, you know, you guys can eat from it. He knows that what's going to happen, you're going to be like God, knowing good from evil. Well, Adam and Eve needed to know good from evil to rule. You need to know what the right decision is, what the wrong decision is. They just, however, were not supposed to eat from the tree and gain that knowledge at the behest of the devil or at the behest of their own decision. You know, it looks good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. Here, Adam, let's eat this. That's the sin. Eventually, I I suspect, and I think a lot of Genesis scholars do suspect, that had they not eaten from it, God would have said, okay, now eat from it. Mm -hmm. And then you gain the knowledge of good and evil. So what the point there is, is that we don't know how to pray. Because we don't know what the ultimate just thing actually is here. What the right decision actually really even is in this situation or that situation. So we pray and the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So humanity is supposed to be the means of redeeming the creation, yet we're still in need of redemption ourselves because we're also weak and we don't know how to rule and so we pray but we don't know how to pray or what to pray Hmm. because we can't see into the future we don't know what the ultimate end is or what the ultimate good is and i I like describing it in um garden of eden language and so we need that wisdom from god and so the answer is but the spirit does so the spirit intercedes for us now by the way let's know something also skipping down to verse 34 for a second uh, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Mm-hmm. So again, we like to make the, like these ni- nice little boxes. This is Jesus. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the Father. These are their roles, what they do. And you're like, actually, they kind of all kind of blur together a little bit. Mm-hmm. Jesus dwells in us. The Spirit of Christ is in us, yet it's the Holy Spirit that's in us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, yet Jesus inter- intercedes for us. So uh, it, it's, it's all of the above. So, again, to, to kind of reiterate, the creation groans, then we groan, and then the Spirit groans.
0: Mm-hmm. Which means there's a number four, then.
1: Yeah, there's a number four, in the, the way Paul lays out this argument. The fourth one, then, is that we don't know what to do as a result of, of the Spirit's intercession for us, but God does. And God, in verse 28, is causing all things to work for good. So this goes back to the this context of... Um, the Reformed theology. And I think the answer is that look, the creation's groaning, we're groaning, the spirit groans for us because we don't know what, the, what just the, the just thing is, but God does know what the just thing is, mm-hmm. and he's working that just thing out for our for us in the long time in, mm-hmm. in the long term. And that, I think this answer is that this includes our suffering that leads to Christ's likeness. So look what he says in verse 29. He's our present sufferings. So he, those he formed new, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his sons so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So I think what Paul is getting at then is that our present sufferings that are the reason why we're groaning, because we're suffering as a result, and the Spirit's interceding for us because we don't know what the right thing to do is. God does. Ultimately, the answer is God's going to work all things out for our good because not only has he given us the Spirit, but he also is guiding us through all these things. And thus the result is, the end result is, verse 29, that we are being conformed into the likeness of His, the image of his Son. Mm. And we're being glorified, verse 30 then. The end result is we're being glorified. So we wrap this up in this theological bubble talking about our justification, but it's actually not talking about our justification at all. It's talking about the justice that's going to happen when the new creation comes in fullness. And it can work with our justification and all that good stuff. if We want to make it fit, but that's not actually not the, the context there. Uh, Paul's point then is to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, verse 28. He works all things to the good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now notice that love God is what? It's the first commandment Mm -hmm. in the law. So again, this is not like the law being done away with. This is the law being fulfilled. The most basic commandment of the Torah is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So N.T. Wright says, They are to be God lovers. In other words, the true law keepers the true Israel. And then he says, that these are the ones who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? To be his image bearers and to be the means through which God's creation is restored. Now, his purpose is, hey, rule and subdue the earth and take care of my garden. And because we didn't do that, the whole creation is suffering. And then we apply this to like to our personal salvation and we think, in fact, our personal salvation means we get to escape from here and go to heaven someday and this is going to burn up. That's exactly the opposite of what he's getting at because the Mm -hmm. whole point of it is creation grows, we grow.
0: All right, so we come to the last section of this, verse 31 through 39. It's bringing us full circle where we've already. You've already alluded yeah. to some of the things that yep. have happened here in terms of there's a bit of a book ending in this uh, chapter, but we started with there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in verse one. And now we're yep. we're seeing that uh, kind of answered again or, or brought back.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One, one scholar said it this way. He said, we look around to see who has condemned us and discover that they've all gone. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there you go. Who will condemn us? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the answer is simple. Since God's love has done so much for us, there's no power that can shake us or that can shake his love from completing the job. And we'll see this in 1 Corinthians 15, that he's currently reigning for a period of time until this is ultimately done. So he's going to give a series of rhetorical questions. So I'm going to give you a quiz. Okay, Vinny? Mm. I'm going to see if you know the answers to these. Uh-oh. All right. So here comes the first question. Verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? No one. Oh, good job. Good job. All right. <laughs> verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, I think the answer is no one. Yes, yes, two for two, ding, ding, ding. You are you're getting close to winning the new car. I did All go right. to Bible college. So oh, 30, 30, thirty-four, <laughs> who shall condemn us?
0: Ah, uh, that would be no one. Gosh, you're, I can't get anything past you, can I? You know, I had a really good Greek teacher in seminary, so that's yeah, what it is.
1: No, no, that's got to be what it is. It's got to be. <laughs> got to be the answer. Yeah. All right, verse thirty-five, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, I think that is also a no one. Oh, yeah, you got it. I didn't even have to give you like multiple choice there. You yeah, didn't even have no. to phone a friend,
0: right? <laughs> I, I have no friends. You're my only you, friend.
1: Was Shayla in the back of my way, telling you all the answers all Yeah, time? she has
0: cue cards that yeah. she's holding up. Yeah. yeah, no one.
1: Mateo got out of bed. <laughs> your, your, your <laughs> no I'm one. i like, it's no one. It's no my one my house bed. is
0: turning into a musical right now. Everyone's singing it, actually. That's what's happening. They're dancing. <laughs> That's
1: right. right so, uh, And verse uh, 38 then, nothing can separate from the love of God. And look what he says. For, I am convinced, and the word for is the reason why. I am convinced. Oh, so I mean, let me go back to the verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer, and that word for conquer is a word for overcome, or naka'o, mm. uh, that we'll see in th- so prominently in the book of Revelation. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Mm. For, for, and the reason why is, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor... Things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus.
0: Hmm. So as we wrap up this up, there's that one phrase that we didn't address that says, um, we need to be careful with it because it says God yeah. is working all things for good to those who love god and man this could be abused especially mm-hmm. if someone's going through a tragedy or something yeah, it's a right. way to way to comfort them it's actually just bringing more pain but yeah i don't know how have you seen this come up even as as a pastor or uh you know just ways you've seen this maybe improperly used
1: all right so the, i think the first way i'd say it is that we have to understand the passage in its context and its context is talking about this creational language of god doing this ultimate great restoration that the Spirit, the creation's groaning, our Spirit's groaning, oh, we're groaning, and then the Spirit's groaning for us. And God is bringing about all things for good because we don't know what good is, but God does know what the good is. Ultimately, he's talking about this justice and the restoration of creation. It's ultimately the new creation. We then take that and apply it to like, oh, this personal tragedy that you had. I'm sorry that you had a car accident and that your four-year-old daughter died. But God's going to work it out for the good. It's like, oh, my, oh, please don't go there Mm -hmm. because their, their child has died. Mm-hmm. what what good is there going to be now? I mean, it, it's so trivializing of the situation there, especially when you add the last part of it, to those who love God. Well, if mm-hmm. you love God, right? Well, right in this moment right now, I'm not sure that I do love God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lost a child or I lost a spouse or I lost this or I lost my home or I lost 9 million people in Pakistan or without everything. Um, I'm not sure I love God right now. And by the way, you like, Well, Rob, you're not allowed to say that. Read the book of Psalms, Mm -hmm. because they love saying, God, I don't know if I like you right now. Um, And they cry out, my God, my God, why have you left me? Right? Psalm 22, that Jesus even quotes on the the cross. Mm -hmm. You've forsaken me. Where are you at, God, in all this?
0: We have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. I think we're allowed to lament.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's not what it's getting at. It doesn't mean that in every cynical personal situation that God's going to bring the good out of good, good thing out. Because sometimes, you know, I was just teaching in India and I was leading some, some pastors to the book of Acts and a lot of the pastors in in India, you know, like, Hey, I want to hear your testimonies too. So a lot of them, you know, on, on a given day, some, you know, pastor X will give his story. And many of their stories are, I grew up in a Hindu background didn't believe in Jesus or the Bible, didn't, You know, I was cursed, we don't believe in any, any of that stuff. And I had a three-year-old child and was really, really ill. And we did all these things for it and nothing happened. And then went to this Hindu shrine, nothing happened. Mm. And then this brother-in-law I had, had a friend who was a Christian and a pastor and he came over and prayed for my child and the child got well. Mm. I and mean, that's their story. And I'm telling you right now, we look at that and go, that's not a good reason to be a Christian, guys you know it's just not based on faith you know and it's just a miracle then uh, but you can't always bank on god doing miracles it's like well in america you probably can't Mm -hmm. but in india they do a lot yeah it happens a lot now it's true but what i was teaching them in the the book of acts then was i said look in acts 12 i think it is uh peter and james are arrested and james is killed and then the plan is the next day we're going to kill peter this is herod's uh the great son and he wants to be claimed be this Jewish king, and they're Idumean, which is partly Jewish. So Herod the Great and his, and his son, they're partly Jewish. They want to be accepted by the Jewish people as this Jewish king. Let me rule over you. Oh, you guys really like it when I kill this James guy? And that's James, the brother of John, one of the 12 apostles. I'll kill Peter too. Mm-hmm. And that night, an angel lets Peter out of prison. Mm-hmm. And the church was praying for Peter. So Peter runs to the church's home, Mary's home. And... They're like startled and thinking it's a ghost. No, that's, that can't be Peter outside. He's in prison and he's not going to be released. Even though the church is, I think it's funny because they're praying for his release. And you know that they believe it. But at the same time, James was just killed early in the day. So do you really believe it? When Peter escapes, he gets to the church's house and they say, uh, maybe it's his ghost. Are you sure it's actually Peter that's at, that's at the door? And it was Peter at the door. And then Peter says, hey, go, by the way, tell James, which is the brother of, of uh, Jesus now, Who's probably the leader of the church? Go tell mm-hmm. him what's going on. And Peter is is gone. And I in, interestingly, because the Luke is so well researched, he says James that Peter went to another place. Meaning, I'm not sure where he went, but he mm-hmm. hid. But the story then is like, well, why did James die and Peter not? Why did they answer Peter the prayer for Peter but not answer the prayer for James? And so we can't say that all things work for good in this like this trivializing sense of my personal situation where I just lost my home or my wife lost her job or I lost my job or we lost a son or there's some sickness. Uh, you, know, you can't say it's going to work out for good in that trivial situation because it may not. But in the long run, it will form this perspective of the resurrection mm-hmm. and, the, and the coming of the new creation. Yeah, that good, it will come about in. But for that good, we need to persevere and persevere in suffering. And through our suffering if we suffer with him we'll also be be co-heirs with him
0: and just to to make a a final addition on that just from a purely practical standpoint when we are going to comfort someone who is in great pain
1: yeah
0: what could you possibly say that's going to bring them comfort when when they're mourning the loss of grandma or wife or Mm -hmm. son or loved one or whoever well and i'm I'm not saying this to like minimize the power of what god can do in a moment but really, if, if someone's mourning the loss of whoever, what words can you say in which they'll say, yeah, you're right. I, my, my, my grandma, the fourth anniversary of my grandma's passing was the other day. And I just remember so many people in my church who loved my grandma would try to come up to me and comfort me. And it's, oh, well, she's in a better place now. She's not hurting. And and never once did I say, you're right. She is in a better place. You know, I'm okay with not seeing her at Thanksgiving. I'm so stupid. Why am I crying right now? I'm not gonna be bummed out to not be with her at Christmas this year. Thank you for sharing. Like, that, just- I I might
1: miss her for the next 20 years, but I have eternity with her, (laughs) killing me.
0: And like the heart means well, but usually what it is is we wanna fix other people. We don't like the discomfort of a situation. We don't know how to handle that. And so we think we could save this person by by offering something. The motive's probably right in some kind of way. But how, in a sense, how arrogant are we to think that I could say something right now that's actually going to relieve them rather than saying, because this is not the way it's supposed to be. Right. And I was saying, there will be a day where God will make this right.
1: Yeah. Excuse me there. As a pastor and having been in this situation many, many times, the thing that you need to do is just sit with them. Yes. Just sit down next to them and mm-hmm. don't say a word. Yep. If they want to talk, they will. If they want to ask a question, if they want to give a mm-hmm. comment, if they want to hear a word, if they want you to pray, they will. And just sit with them. Yep. Now, as a pastor, I wouldn't do this, but you know, if, if you're just a friend of a friend, give them a hug. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, just be careful, because they might not want that right now. No. Never say, I understand. Mm. Now, if they know that you've gone through something similar to this, then that person sitting with them actually means even more. Because they but, know that they're sitting in grief together.
0: Go and ahead, and, and with that, I was going to say, don't make this about you to say, yeah. I understand. Look at when I went through this. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't care how you went through this. Because right, right now, they're in it. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. As a pastor, having gone through grief myself,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I knew all the answers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I knew the Bible. I knew that you weren't going to walk up to me and give me a Bible verse that I probably didn't already know. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It didn't take away my pain. No, and and it, it didn't at all. In fact, on that on a side note here, I won't get into this right now, now at all. But my wife and I experienced grief, and we realized three years later we didn't grieve mm. because we thought we had it all together. We thought we were supposed to, to you know to be to be, be above this, and there's a time to grieve, and there mm. really is. And we didn't grieve, mm. and it hit us three years later and um hit us both at the same time and at a, at a particular moment like oh gosh um yeah there's a time to grieve and grieving mm-hmm. um, because death is not supposed to be it's mm-hmm. the way it's supposed to, the way it is um, and uh, you're never going to get those memories back um, mm-hmm. and the person of those memories is not coming back or whatever it might be so absolutely
0: mm, yeah Well, hey, I, this has been a good episode at least I liked it, <laughs> uh, but lots of stuff covered the gamut of yeah. theology to practical, just shepherding of people. So what a great book in the book of Romans. So next week, we're going to take the next couple of weeks to talk about nine through 11, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you and I will just be talking about nine through 11 next week, and then yeah. we're going to have some really great guests on the yeah. week after that to talk about it.
1: That's right. That's right. So we have some great guests, um, Gary Burge and Daryl Bach, uh, who are on different sides of the issue of Romans nine through 11. They're, they're going to come in. And of course, if you listen to my issue, my, you know, my presentation, my, Vinny and my presentation the week before, you'll kind of get the correct answer and then figure out which one of them is correct or not based on what we said. But uh, then we're also going to interview uh, Scott McKnight and uh, get a good, really good overview of his particular take on the whole book of Romans. So we'll kind of just like wrap the whole book of Romans up, but we really haven't looked at Romans 14 and 15 yet. And McKnight's going to force mm-hmm. us to start there. And then we'll go back and look at Romans one through 11 and light of Romans 14 and 15 Uh, and wrap the whole book up, and then uh, off to the book of 1
0: Corinthians. Awesome. All right, everyone. Catch you guys later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.